We are in a message series called Intervention, looking at ways that God intervenes in our lives. We, uh, we often think of God's intervention being in times of crisis uh, and tragedy when, when, when difficult situations just kind of come upon us and we pray for God's intervention. Today we're going to look at a different way that that God intervenes in our lives, and it, it shows something absolutely beautiful about God. And what we're looking at today is how does, how does God act in our lives when we fail? How does God intervene in moments of failure in our lives? And um, one thing that... Uh, I, I know is that we all either experience failure or we worry about failure, we regret failure. Failure is something that we, um, it, it's just a common part of our human experience. Uh, what we're going to look at is a scripture in uh, the Gospel of Luke, and it's actually a description of what happens Uh, during the the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples. And so I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Uh, I hope you brought your Bible. Bring it every Sunday. If you did not bring a Bible, you can find one uh, under the chair in front of you or to the side of you. Um, If you don't have a Bible, I would love to give you one. You can see me after the worship service, and I will get you a Bible. And we're going to start with verse 19. Uh, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, look at page uh, 1044. We're going to start with verse 19. And Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Now the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Now the disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, so now Jesus is talking to the disciple Peter. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am already, I'm ready. 
to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, this story uh, shows us a few things about failure. It actually shows us the human response to failure, Satan's response to failure, and then Jesus' response to failure. And let's look at the first one, the human response to failure, and that is we allow it to consume us if we do not watch out. I remember when I was maybe 12, um, I was in a tennis league at that time, and in that particular league, we were younger players. We didn't play multiple sets for a match. A match consisted of one elongated set, so the first player to uh, eight games ahead by two won the match instead of game of a set of six games instead of uh, eight uh, games to win and I just got killed I mean I got killed that particular day I was beat eight zero and I went home, uh, and I had a relative that was visiting, an uncle from Philadelphia, and he was a good guy. He was a funny guy, and he was a guy that loved to tease you. And so I, I come inside, I'm carrying my racket, my tennis racket. It's like, hey, Greg, how are you doing? How's your tennis match? He skunked you, didn't he? I bet you he skunked you. So, skunking in competitive terms means what? means that you didn't let your opponent score anything, which is exactly what happened to me. So I was at a kind of a critical moment, faced with my failure and uh, not wanting to be ridiculed by my uncle. So this moment of, of crisis for me, and I thought, this is what's going on in my head. I thought, okay, well, I could, like in a split second of time, what I thought about like, well, I could just, yeah, admit the truth and ridic- subject myself to an afternoon of uh, being ridiculed by my uncle in a fun-loving but still terrifying way. I could fudge the truth a little bit, make it a little more competitive. Maybe I, maybe I lost five to eight or six to eight, you know, a little more respectable loss. Or why not just kind of go all the way and say that I won? You know, maybe maybe a real close game, like... In a tiebreaker, one nine to eight or something like that, and you know, and and that's what um, fa- failure can can do to us. Can make us think all kinds of crazy things about ourselves. Why can failure be so powerful? Because when I look back at that, what's the big deal? I'm twelve. It's a tennis game, right? Here's why failure can be so powerful, because it threatens our identity. So what do I do? Do I tell the whole truth? Do I fudge the truth a little bit? Do I give me a 9-8 to eight victory? I said, no, Uncle Skip, he didn't skunk me. I won 8-2. to two. Might as well go all the way if you're going to tell a lie. And that, you know, that's just what failure does. Makes us makes us do <laughs> strange and interesting things. Uh, there is something in the human soul which hates failure. We'll avoid it. We will stretch the truth to deny it. And if we are not careful, it will consume us. So look at the disciples in this passage. I'm just fascinated 
by the details of how Luke describes the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples um, because he, he, he's at table with them. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And that's failure right there. And the disciples all start debating about who's going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Maybe, maybe him. Maybe, maybe that guy over there, he might do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I, I wouldn't fail Jesus like that. But then notice verse 24, and, and this is unique to how Luke describes this scene. Um, unique in that Matthew, Mark, John, they don't add this detail. So Luke is making an intentional point here. So verse 24 says that after they all deny and probably do a little bit of finger pointing about who's going to betray Jesus, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So, just get this. I mean, Jesus is just finished with saying, I am going to sacrifice my body for you. I am going to shed my blood for you. I will sacrifice myself for you. Why? Because I love you. I love you. And what's their response to that? They start arguing about, well, who's the greatest? They were trying to build their identity, not on God, but on their greatness. And what you build your identity on is absolutely one of the most critical things you will do with your life. There's a Danish um, philosopher, Christian, uh, named Soren Kierkegaard, and he, he wrote many interesting things and maybe was off on a few of them, but was on on many of the things that he said. I think he's right on the money here when he talks about what sin really is. We often think of sin as, you know, doing bad things, some deeds, some misdeeds. And that is certainly a part of what sin is, but sin is even greater than that. Here is his definition of sin. Sin is building your identity on anything but God. That is sin. In other words, sin is trying to form your self-identity without thinking about how God feels about you, without thinking about what God wants for your life, his will for your life, his his commands for your life. Without that, that being the central part of your identity, that is walking in sin. And we're always evaluating how things are going on in our life. You know, how, how are the kids doing? You know, how's my life going? Well, let me, how do I calculate how I'm doing? I look to my kids. How are my kids doing? Or how's my job doing? Or how's the house going? Is it in shambles? Is it looking good? How's my career going? Now, none of those things are bad, right? In fact, they're very good. Career, family, home, all very good things. Sin is when we take anything, even those really good things, and we elevate them in importance to where they should not be. To where we need them in order to feel this sense of identity and and security. And whenever you build your identity on anything other than God, you will have a radically unstable identity. Now, why is that? Well, think of a time that you have been recognized for something that you did particularly well. Try to, try to go through the, the memory there. And when were you recognized? When did you receive some, some praise or admir- admiration um, from others? That feels good. 
right? The only problem is it doesn't last. You know, if you're a musician, then, then you'll know this. It's the performance you're doing right now that matters. No, <laughs> no one, uh, no, no musician uh, performs poorly and, and, then, and then thinks to him or herself, well, if you'd only listened to my last performance, that one was really good. You know, we, we don't do that. That performance, that good performance, the last time never makes up for a good performance in the present. So when we're praised, we're always wanting more praise down the road. It's, it's never enough. When we're criticized, our past praises never cover up for that criticism. And that's why they say for every one critical remark, how many does it take? Seven, ten good remarks, positive remarks to counteract that, that negative critical comment. That's just how we work. That's how our minds and our hearts work. So when we build our identity on our performance, we'll always be hungry for more praise. We will never be at a place where we feel, ah, I'm I'm finally there. I've reached the promised land. I don't need any more praise for the rest of my life. If we are building our identity on our praise, we will never get there. There will always be someone who is better, whose kids are better, whose bank account is as larger, and it just will never be enough what is going on in our life. So if we evaluate our life based on our successes and our, our failures, that will consume us. Our failures will consume us. And you see, we're not the only one that wants failure to have that effect on our life. Or well, we don't want to have our, that effect, but we can make that the effect um, on our life, failure consuming us. But there's one that definitely wants it to consume us, and that is the devil. That is Satan. Satan's response to failure is this, make it define us. What does Satan do to try to lead us away from God? Primarily, it's not... I don't think primarily he tries to make us do things that are bad, that we know are bad. I, I mean, Satan can tempt us in that way, but I don't think that is his primary strategy getting us to do bad things that we know are bad. Instead, he tries us to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. He tries us to, 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 to get us to take our family and our career and, and our, our, our possessions and our security, our home, and, and make those ultimate things in our life. And then we start, when we do that, we start comparing our performance with others, just like the disciples were doing at that dinner. Who's the greatest? And they start comparing their performances. I've, I've done more miracles. I've read more Bible, whatever it was. I don't know how they were evaluating their greatness, but they were doing some comparison there, and that's what we do. And here's the truth. If we build our identity on performance, two things, enough will never be enough, and God will never seem good enough. We'll never have enough achievements. We'll never have enough advancements. We will never identify enough things in our performance to say, ah, we're finally there. So enough will never be enough. And you know what? God just will never seem good enough. He'll, he'll, 
we'll, we'll feel shortchanged. We'll, we'll feel like we haven't made it on our own. And so, God, you must be not be doing something that you should be doing. You're sliding me in some way here. God will never seem good enough. And in this process... Our focus no longer is on God and his goodness. Our focus is on ourselves and our failures. And this is how Satan tries to ruin your relationship with God, which is his main goal, is to ruin your relationship with God. So let's look at Jesus' response to our failure. He wants to use it to transform us. I want to mention three things about this. Three things. Jesus gives us a new foundation. He builds our faith. And he brings us freedom. So Jesus gives... That's a new foundation for our identity. So, you know, the disciples are arguing with themselves about who is the greatest, and Jesus gives them some new criteria by which to evaluate greatness, doesn't he? Look at verse 26. It says, okay, if you want to talk about greatness... Here's how. The greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So Jesus is saying the way that you evaluate greatness is completely backwards. I wish that we could get that. I wish I could get that because I always get that wrong. I always get that wrong when I think about what does greatness look like. Jesus says, you have it completely backwards. Here's how you should evaluate greatness. Find the youngest person around. Okay, because the youngest person around is going to have the least accomplishments in their portfolio, right? Because they're young. They haven't done hardly anything. Find the, find the youngest who has the least amount of experiences, the least amount of accomplishments. So look for the youngest if you want to find the greatest. And then think of the person that just goes around and wants to be a servant to others. That is what Jesus says is the greatest. That's our evaluation Tools that Jesus provides. And there is nothing, thinking about that, that young person or that person who's just serving others, there's nothing that screams greatness in them, right? From from just a human point of view. And ah, that's the key. There is nothing in us that leads to our greatness. And if it doesn't come from something that is in us, Where does it come from? Something that is external to us. That is where we receive greatness. So look at what Jesus then tells his disciples. Where where is this external source of greatness? Verse 29, Jesus says, I confer on you a kingdom. I confer on you a kingdom. A kingdom. And I confer it to you. You don't earn it. You You don't merit it. I give it to you. Just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, which I have given you, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's what Jesus does for us that makes us great. Your identity is not based on what you have done. It's based on what Jesus has done. I confer on you a kingdom. It's mine to give, and I give it to you. I put you on thrones. It's me. It's what I do for you. So the foundation of our identity is what Jesus has done for us. Next, 
Jesus uses our failure as an opportunity to build our faith. All right, so there's a struggle between Peter, Simon, Simon Peter, and Satan and Jesus. This interesting thing going on in this passage that we're going to look at. Satan sees failure as an opportunity to destroy our faith. Jesus says, I'm going to use failure to grow your faith. So what Jesus says next is really fascinating. Verse 31, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, that's his name, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So what does it mean that Satan wants to sift the disciples like wheat? Like wheat, um, it means to put you such uh, through such a, a test that you will surely fail. Remember Satan's conversation with with God in the book of Job, where God commends Job to Satan. Look at my servant Job; he's blameless, he's faultless. And Satan says, "Well, let me put him to, through the the test. Let me." Put him through some struggle, and we'll just see about that. Let me sift him like wheat. So, Satan wants to show us what failures we are by sifting us like wheat. That's what Satan sets out to do. But it's amazing what Jesus says next. He says, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but Jesus does not say, but I told him, hands off, keep, my, keep your hands off my disciples. He doesn't say that. Instead, he tells Peter, but I prayed for you, that when you go through that test, that your faith will not fail. Now, notice two things here. One, Satan only has power to do in our life what God gives the devil the authority to do. Okay? God, God's the go-between. God's in charge. We don't have to fear Satan running rampant with the world or our lives. He only does what he does through the sovereign permission of God. God uses it for good. But the next thing to notice, and this is really important, Jesus says, Peter, Satan's going to put you to the test. Because he wants to prove that you are a failure. But don't worry. I've prayed that your faith will not fail. Notice he doesn't say, but I've prayed that you will not fail. And that's what we kind of expect him to say, right? Satan's going to put you to the test, Peter, but don't worry. You're going to be fine. I I pray that you won't fail. That's not what Jesus prays or says. He says, I've told him. I've I've prayed to the Father that your faith will not fail. So Jesus was not praying that Peter wouldn't mess up. And what happens? Peter messes up three times. He denies that he knows Jesus. In the next 12 or so hours, he denies that he knows Jesus three times to save his own skin. Jesus knows that Peter is going to fail him, and he is going to build Peter's faith through that. 
So what does it mean that our faith does not fail? So John chapter 21 tells of what happens a few days later. This is after Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection. And Jesus is with His disciples. And He's pulled Peter off to the side. And Peter's already failed Jesus three times denying. And Jesus knows that. And Peter knows that Jesus knows that. And all, all that stuff. And he pulls Peter to the side and he says, Peter, do you love me? Well, Peter would think, I've, I've failed you. i failed you. And Jesus asks him again, do you love me? Do you love me? So is Peter going to be able to put his failure behind him? That's the question. Are you going to be able to move on from this, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Jesus asks Peter, once for every time that Peter fails Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Peter declares. I love you. Then Jesus says, well, take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Strengthen your brothers. Your your disciples, your fellow disciples, strengthen them. And in doing so, when Peter did so, his faith did not fail. So what is faith? So our faith, what, what is it? I mean, it's our belief in God. Yes, it is. That is faith, belief in God. But let's push a little bit deeper of of, of what this reveals that faith is. If sin is leaving God out of your identity, then faith is building your identity on God. Faith is exactly the opposite. So important, important points here. Faith is building your identity on God's unceasing love for you. And that is what Jesus asked Peter to do in that moment because Peter had failed Jesus and Jesus says, I don't want you to be identified by that. I don't want that to consume you. I want you to put your faith in my unceasing love for you. So faith is building your identity on God's unceasing love for you. That's the love that Jesus showed Peter through P- uh, even though Peter rejected Jesus. So you build your identity by relishing in God's unceasing love for you so much that it moves you to love Him. And I use relishing intentionally there. Because I think what Jesus invites us to do is to relish in His love for us. Not just know about His love for us. Not just say, yeah, 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 Jesus loves me. But to relish, to savor, to just be overwhelmed by that, that Jesus loves you. So be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for you, so much so that it moves you to love Him. See, notice that Peter's faith moved him to act. If you love me, tend my sheep. Take care of my sheep, Jesus says. So real faith bears fruit. If we desperately hang on to Jesus' love for us, we will have the strength to keep going, to keep going. Jesus says, all you need to keep going is to know this. I love you. I love you. Put your faith in that and keep going. Don't quit. So you see how Jesus intervenes in our failure? I mean, he kind of defangs failure, doesn't he? Here's Peter failing Jesus, and he just pulls all those fangs out of failure and says, "Ah, okay, move on, because I love you. So the example of Peter shows, shows us reversals. Look at these reversals. Yeah, whenever we say failure, Jesus says forgiveness. You've got to remember that. Whenever we say it's time to quit, thinking that I matter to God, Jesus says, get back up, I love you. 
delight in my love. And whenever we say God's grace has limits, Jesus says, never, ever, ever give up on my grace. These reversals that Jesus reveals to us through our failure. So can you fail God? Okay, let's talk about that. Can you fail God? Because it seems like what Jesus is asking us most to do is this. Don't give up on my love for you. Don't give up on my love for you. How about that? Don't give up on my grace. That's what he asks of us. And as long as we keep at the center of our identity how much God loves us than that, that is living faithfully with Jesus. And if we have faith, then we cannot fail Him. And finally, by building our faith, Jesus brings us freedom. When you know that with faith you cannot fail God, when you put your hope in God's unfailing love, that means you cannot fail God, that brings us great freedom. One, it gives us freedom from guilt. We're building our identity on God's love for us. That will give us freedom from guilt and feeling like we're failures and moping as Christians. And it gives us freedom to live for God. So you might think, is all this possible? Really, this this crazy reversal? Is that possible? Because I think of greatness differently than Jesus describes it, being like the one with no accolades whatsoever and the one who just goes around serving people. Is that possible for me to live that way? It seems so foreign. Is that possible? I want to take you, I'm going to read you this scripture that comes from a letter that Peter himself wrote. The disciple who failed Jesus. The disciple who was arguing with his fellow disciples who was the greatest. I want to read you this section from something that Peter wrote in one of his letters. That's in our Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2-11. through 11, And just listen to this. Peter writes, this is some time later, some years later, he writes this. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest, dishonest gain, but eager to, to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. This is the disciple who was arguing with his fellows about who was the greatest. And now he's saying, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's almighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And Peter's got, as he's writing this, he's, he's thinking, yeah, I know. I've been there. I've had that devil roaring around me like a lion. 
resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory to Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Is it possible? Yes, my friends, it is. That is the power of Jesus' love for you. It's strong enough to take this disciple who is absolutely absorbed with whether or not he was the greatest of all disciples and made him prize humility and service and God's grace and God's love. And Jesus' love will do that for you as well. Do you want that to be the center of your identity? I do. I do. I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. We ask that you would forgive us whenever we put limits on your love, whenever we act like your love is not strong enough to to lift us up, to restore us, to embrace us, to forgive us, to provide for us, to see us through to be our shelter, to be our strength. Lord, help us to live fully empowered, engrossed by Your amazing love for us. Thank You for Jesus. And may He be the center of all that we are and all that we do. The center of our being, in Jesus' name, Amen.